Chapter Nine of the Unclassed. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Susan Smith Nash, Tulsa, Oklahoma. The Unclassed by George Robert Gissing. Chapter Nine The Cousins. Harriet Smales had left home in a bad temper that Sunday afternoon, and, when she came back to tea, after her walk with Julian, her state of mind did not appear to have undergone any improvement. She took her place at the tea-table in silence. She and Mrs. Ogle were alone this evening, the latter's husband. He was a journeyman printer, and left entirely in his wife's hands the management of the shop in Gray's Inn Road, happened to be away. Mrs. Ogle was a decent, cheerful woman of motherly appearance. She made one or two attempts to engage Harriet in conversation, but, feeling, subsided into silence, only looking askance at the girl from time to time. When she had finished her tea and bread and butter, Harriet coughed, and, without facing her companion, spoke in a rather cold way. "'I may be late back to-night, Mrs. Ogle. You won't lock the door?' Well, "'I shan't go to bed until eleven myself,' was the reply. "'But it may be after twelve when I get back. Where are you going to, Harriet?' "'If you must know always, Mrs. Ogle,' "'I'm going to see my friend in Westminster.' "'Well, it ain't no business of mine, my girl,' returned the woman, not unkindly. "'But I think it's only right that I should have some idea where you spend your nights. "'As long as you live in my house, I'm responsible for you, in a way.' "'I don't want anyone to be responsible for me, Mrs. Ogle.' "'Maybe not, my girl, but young people ain't always the best judges of what's good for them and what isn't. I don't think your cousin would approve of you or being out so late. I shall sit up for you, and you mustn't be after twelve. It was said very decidedly. Harriet made no reply, but speedily dressed and went out. She took an omnibus eastward and sought a neighborhood which most decently dressed people would have been chary of entering after nightfall, or indeed at any other time, unless compelled to do so. The girl found the object of her walk in a dirty little public-house at the corner of two foul and narrow byways. She entered by a private door and passed into a parlor, which was behind the bar. A woman was sitting in the room, beguiling her leisure with a Sunday paper. She was dressed with vulgar showiness, and made a lavish display of jewelry, more or less valuable. Eight years ago she was a servant in Mr. Smales's house, and her name was Sarah. She had married, in the meanwhile, and become Mrs. Browell. She welcomed her visitor with a friendly nod, but did not rise. 
i thought it likely you'd look in as you missed last week how's things going in your part of the world very badly returned harriet throwing off her hat and cloak and going to warm her hands and feet at the fire it won't last much longer that's the truth of it eh well it's all in a life we all has our little trials and troubles as the saying is how's the baby asked harriet looking towards a bundle of wrappers which lay on a sofa i doubt it's too good for this world returned the mother grinning in a way which, which made her ugly face peculiarly revolting dare say it'll join his little brother and sister before long mike put it in the club yesterday the burial club mrs sprowl meant and harriet evidently understood the allusion have you walked went on the woman doubling up her paper then throwing it aside dare say you could do a something to take the cold off your chest liz she called out to someone behind the bar with which the parlor communicated by an open door too irish the liquor was brought presently someone called to mrs sprowl who went out leaning on the counter in one of the compartments was something which a philanthropist might perhaps have had the courage to claim as a human being a very tall creature with bent shoulders and head seeming to grow straight out of its chest thick grizzled hair hiding almost every vestige of feature with the exception of one dreadful red eye its fellow being dead and sightless he had laid on the counter with palms downward as if concealing something to huge hairy paws mrs sprowl seemed familiar with this appearance of this monster she addressed him rather bad-temperedly but otherwise much as she would have spoken to any other customer oh no you don't slimy no you don't what you have in this house you pay for in coppers so you know next time i catch you trying to ring the changes i'll have you run in and then you'll get a warm bath which you wouldn't particular care for the creature spoke in hoarse jumbled words not so easy to catch unless you listened closely if you have any accusation to make again me mrs sprowl perhaps you'll wait till you can prove it i want change for arf a sovereign ain't that straight now straight or not you won't get no change over this counter so there you've got the straight tip now sling your rook slimy and get it somewhere else if you have any accursion to make hold your noise what is it he's ordered liz pot of old six answered the girl got sixpence slimy no i ain't mrs sprowl muttered the creature i have arf a sovereign then go and get change for it now once more sling your hook 
the man moved away sending back a horrible glare from his one fiery eyeball mrs Browell re-entered the parlour i wish you'd take me on as a barmaid sarah harriet said when she had drunk her glass of spirits take you on exclaimed the other with surprise why have you fallen out with your cousin i thought you was going to be married soon i didn't say for sure that i was i only said i might be anyway it won't be just yet and i'm tired of my place in the shop don't be a fool harriet said the other with genial frankness you're well enough off you stick where you are till you get married you wouldn't make nothing in our business tain't all sugar and lemon and sittin and drinkin twos o whisky till further orders you want a quiet easy business you do and you've got it if you keep worritin yourself this way you won't never make old bones and that's the truth you wait a bit and give your cousin a chance to arst you if that's what you're troublin about i've given him lots of chances said harriet peevishly eh well give him lots more and it'll all come all right we're all born but we're not buried have another irish harriet allowed herself to be persuaded to take another glass when the clock pointed to half-past nine she rose and prepared to depart she had told mrs sprowl that she would take the bus and go straight home but something seemed to have led her to alter her purpose for when she made her way to westminster bridge and crossed the river she made some inquiries of a policeman and in consequence got into a kennington omnibus very shortly she was set down close by walcott square she walked about till with some difficulty in the darkness she had discovered the number at which julian had told her his friend lived the house found she began to pace up and down on the opposite pavement always keeping her eyes fixed on the same door she was soon shivering in the cold night air and quickened her walk it was rather more than an hour before the door she was watching at length opened and two friends came out together harriet followed them as closely as she could until she saw that she herself was observed thereupon she walked away and by a circuit ultimately came back into the main road where she took a bus going northwards harriet's cousin when alone of an evening sat in his bedroom the world shut out his thoughts in long past times rebuilding the ruins of a fallen empire when he was eighteen the lad had the good luck to light upon a cheap copy of gibbon in a second-hand bookshop it was the first edition six noble quarto volumes clean and firm in the old bindings often he had turned 
longing eyes upon newer copies of the great book, but the price had always put them beyond his reach. That very night he solemnly laid open the first volume at the first page, propping it on a couple of meaner books, and, after glancing through the short preface, began to read with a mind as devoutly disposed as that of any pious believer poring upon his Bible. In the second century of the Christian era, the empire of Rome comprehended the fairest part of the earth, and the most civilized portion of mankind. The frontiers of that extensive monarchy were guarded by ancient renown and disciplined valor. With what a grand epic roll, with what anticipations of solemn music, did the noble history begin far far into the night julian turned over page after page thoughtless of sleep and the commonplace duties of the morrow since then he had mastered his gibbon knew him from end to end and joyed in him more than ever whenever he had a chance of obtaining any of the writers ancient or modern to whom gibbon refers he read them, and added to his knowledge. About a year ago he had picked up an old Claudian, and the reading of the poet had settled him to a task which he had before that doubtfully sought. He wanted to write either a poem or a drama on some subject taken from the decline and fall, and now with Claudian's help, he fixed upon Stilicho for his hero. The form, he then decided, could be dramatic. Upon Stilicho, he had now been engaged for a year, and tonight he is writing the last words of the last scene. Shortly after twelve, he has finished it, and, throwing down his pen, he paces about the room with enviable feelings. He had not as yet mentioned to Waymark the work he was engaged upon, though he had confessed that he wrote verses at times. He wished to complete it, and then read it to his friend. It was now only the middle of the week, and, though he had decided previously to wait till his visit to Walcott Square next Sunday before saying a word about Stilicho, he could not refrain now from hastily pinning a note to Waymark and going out to post it at once. When the day came, the weather would not allow the usual walk with Harriet, and Julian could not help feeling glad that it was so. He was too preoccupied to talk in the usual way with the girl, and he knew how vain it would be to try to make her understand his state of mind. Still, he went to see her as usual, and sat for an hour in Mrs. Ogle's parlor. At times throughout the week, he had thought of the curious resemblance between Harriet and the girl he had noticed on leaving Waymark's house last Sunday. Now he asked her in a half-jesting way, 
whether it had really been she. "'How could it be?' said Harriet carelessly. "'I can't be in two places at once.' "'Did you stay at home that evening?' "'No, not all the evening.' "'What friends are they you go to when you are out at night, Harriet?' "'Oh, some relations of the Colchester people. "'I suppose you've been spending most of your time in Kennington since Sunday.' "'I haven't left home. "'In fact, I've been very busy. "'I've just finished some work that has occupied me for nearly a year.' "'After all, he could not refrain from speaking of it, "'though he had made up his mind not to do so. "'Work!' "'What work?' asked Harriet, with the suspicious look which came into her grey eyes whenever she heard something that she could not understand. "'Some writing. I've written a play.' "'A play? Will it be acted?' "'Oh, no. It isn't meant for acting.' "'What's the good of it, then?' "'It's written in verse. I shall, perhaps, try to get it published.' "'Shall you get money for it?' "'That is scarcely likely. "'In all probability, I shall not be able to get it printed at all.' "'Then what's the good of it?' repeated Harriet, still suspicious and a little contemptuous. "'It has given me pleasure, that's all.' Julian was glad when, at length, he could take his leave." Waymark received him with a pleased smile and much questioning. "'Why did you keep it such a secret? I shall try my hand at a play some day or other, but, as you can guess, the material will scarcely be sought in Gibbon. It will be desperately modern, possibly not altogether in accordance with the views of the Lord Chamberlain. What's the time? Four o'clock.' We'll have a cup of coffee, and then fall to. I'm eager to hear your deep-chested music, your hollow O's and A's. The reading took some three hours. Waymark smoked a vast number of pipes the while, and was silent till the close. Then he got up from his easy chair, took a step forward, and held out his hand. His face shone with the frankest enthusiasm. He could not express himself with sufficient vehemence. Julian sat with the manuscript rolled up in his hands, on his face a glow of delight. It's, it's very kind of you to speak in this way, he faltered at length. "'Kind! How the deuce should I speak? But come, we will have this off to a publisher's forthwith. Have you any ideas for the next work?' "'Yes, but so daring that they hardly bear putting into words. Try the effect on me.' "'I have thought,' said Julian with embarrassment, of a long poem, an epic. Virgil 
wrote of the founding of rome her dissolution is as grand a subject it would mean years of preparation again years in the writing the siege and capture of rome by alaric what do you think a work not to be raised from the heat of youth or the vapours of wine but who knows there was high talk in walcott square that evening all unknown to its other inhabitants the poor lodging-house was converted into a temple of the muses and harmonies as from apollo's lyre throbbed in the hearts of the two friends the future was their inexhaustible subject the seed-plot of strange hopes and desires they talked the night into morning hardly daunted when perforce they remembered the day's work end of chapter nine recording by susan smith nash tulsa oklahoma